0: So even if you're not a Christian that's been redeemed, you can still contribute positively by pursuing the virtues. It's so much more difficult. It's almost impossible without the redemptive act of Christ in your life. But at least you become a decent human being by any measure. Welcome everyone to the Salty Pastor. Uh, This is an opportunity for me, Dr. Douglas Peake to share with you some of the thoughts and some of the things that uh, I've been dealing with, thinking about mulling over in my head that I believe can help you in your journey of faith. The point is uh, doing the Salting Pastor is to help you discover your authentic self by clarifying your core values. And so I want you to know what you believe. I want you to know why you believe it. Uh, because as they say, according to an ancient Chinese proverb, uh, the most difficult journey of all is knowing yourself. And so we want to help you in your faith, know what you believe, why you believe it, by helping you clarify the foundational principles on which you build your life. Most particularly your faith. Now, every Tuesday we do a Bible study and then on Thursday we do an application and pastor Harv is going to be sharing the message with us this coming Sunday. And so we're very excited about that. And he is going to be reviewing the movie Braveheart, which or using the movie Braveheart, we're going to talk about it in just a moment, as you may notice. Jesse is not here this week, so I am riding solo in this seat and I'm going to see what it's like because uh, he's off uh, doing a camp for kids and he has a real heart for uh, kids and he and another children's minister run a camp up uh, outside of Fairfield, Idaho, which is uh, fairly close to the Sun Valley area. Now, our current series this summer is called At The Movies. And as I said before, Pastor Harv is going to be uh, using Braveheart to talk about some very important things, primarily virtues and why virtues in your life are critically important. If you're a spiritual person and you're on the journey of faith, uh, today, we're going to be discussing the themes of the movie Braveheart and how they relate or can communicate through story the power of virtues. So let's give you a little background to the movie Brave Heart. It is the story of William Wallace. And the actual history of William Wallace is that in 1280, so the end of the 13th century, uh, King Edward the Longshanks invades and conquers Scotland. Okay. Now he did this because Alexander II of Scotland died, and when he died, he left no actual heir. And so even though up to this point Scotland was independent, he died without an heir. And so Longshanks, King Edward, came in and said, Hey, I'm taking over. Well, young William Wallace uh noticed that when Longshanks came in and took over Uh, the land, what he did is he called a lot of the Scottish nobility. Now the way this worked was, is in a kingdom is the king owned everything. All the land. And then what the King would do is give you rights to land as a noble. So if you were a Lord, then he would give you rights to a certain amount of land and property. And then what you would do exercising your right over this property is you were in charge of all the people that lived there. And so you would be in charge of manufacturing and feeding and housing and clothing, all of these people. And then in. Uh, kind of repayment of that you pledged felty to the King that gave you these rights to this land. And what ended up happening is if that King ever went to war, then you had to supply, uh, personnel, you had to supply soldiers and you had to supply goods. So you would supply things like, you know, weeds and various uh, other staples. Uh, You would have to supply weaponry, anything else. So what happened is you as a Lord would be over this. Well, in Scotland, they had these nobility, these Lords that were in charge that were really powerful. And so King Longshanks called them together into a meeting to talk about this new thing. And what he did is he betrayed them all and killed them. And William Wallace saw that the aftermath of that. And so his uncle grabs him and takes him off and educates them, uh, somewhere in France. So this was his paternal uncle Argyle who does this. Now Wallace then is a, a man returns many, many years later, 25, 30 years later to his homeland. And in the story or the movie, he falls in love with a childhood friend and they decide to get married, but they need to get married in secret. And the reason why is because Longshanks, in order to kind of keep his blood claim to the land, he wanted to stop or dilute any pure Scottish blood. And so the English would employ what was known on a just. Uh, yeah, let me see if I can say this right. Okay. It's a jus prime noctis. And what it means is that in their law, if anybody got married in the church publicly, then what would happen is the Lord of that land who was now an Englishman could have sexual relations with that new bride on her wedding night. And so now there's been some historical debate about whether this actually took place, was it actually a policy that was implemented, but you can see in the movie story being told, this was a horrible, horrible thing. And so William Wallace and his childhood friend get married in secret. Well, later on when they're in the little village there, where there's a English garrison with uh, soldiers who are there to keep the King's peace. Some of these soldiers try and rape his wife. So he defends her, but in the process she's captured. And so the Lord of the garrison there, the Englishman puts her on a post and then he publicly executes her for the disturbance. And this is what begins the Scottish rebellion for William Wallace in order to become an independent kingdom once again. So what's interesting about this story is it's just, it chronicles how many of the Scottish clans come together, rally around him, and then ultimately how he is betrayed by the Scottish nobility who want to have peace with long shanks, King Edward and maintain control of their lands. So by uh suing for peace and making sure there's no war and paying taxes, uh Longshanks retains control of the land. And then these lords, Scottish lords, get more power. At least that was the thought. However, in order to do that, the people give up their freedom. They are no longer an independent nation. So What's fascinating is in the story itself, the movie of Braveheart is William Wallace is introduced to what Robert the Bruce, who's the son of the older Robert that is trying to sue for peace and ends up betraying the Scottish people and William Wallace. Uh, and at the end of the movie, here's a spoiler alert, he's captured. And then he is put to death and he can have a quick death or a long, painful death, all he has to do is cry out for mercy and basically say, I submit to the King's authority. And he refuses to do that all the way to the end. And so Robert Bruce is inspired by his sacrifice. And then he wins at, at Birkin, Birkin or bow or something. I can never pronounce those. Uh those uh, battle names properly, he wins independence once again for the Scottish people and then the Pope, uh, in probably 1328, something like that. He recognizes their lineage and their uh, authority to be an independent sovereign nation. So this is what it's all about. Now, Robert the Bruce and what he did in winning independence for the Scottish people is actually been made into a movie starring Chris Pine called the outlaw King, and you can watch it on Netflix. And so Robert the Bruce or the outlaw King was inspired by William Wallace. Now the movie Braveheart was really interesting in that it did not have like this massive, massive box office for the time it was made in 1995, it made uh, an amazing it made like 5 times what it cost uh in revenue in compared to how much it actually cost to be made and so that was a pretty significant thing the other issue is that over time it's become a really classic and it really resonates particularly with men now the main themes in the movie are your concept of identity Who are you, are you free or are you not? And in that case, the Scottish wanted to be free. It it talks about the meaning of Liberty. What is it really? Uh, it talks about betrayal, you know, the, the desire to trust certain people and what happens when you're betrayed. It talks about sacrifice, uh, particularly when you are unwilling to compromise your core values. What kind of sacrifice will you make if you are unwilling to compromise your core values? So it was well-received, a uh, fairly large box office for what it cost to make. And it's become a classic and men really, really respect it because I think men are, uh, resonate with a lot of the things in this movie because it inspires them to discover who they really are, and they realize that I need to fight for my authentic identity. Some things are worth dying for, and these things are, are bigger than just trying to survive one more day. And so I think that's one of the themes that is really resonating with men. Uh, I remember a speech that I heard a recording of a speech from Martin Luther King, Jr., and he was preaching a message and he says, you know, If you, when a man doesn't find something worth dying for, he's not fit to live. So what Martin Luther King jr. Was saying is that you have to have something outside of yourself. That's bigger than you, that you have to live for. And I think once you understand that this is the themes that are woven into this movie, you really understand what pastor Harv is going to be preaching on about virtues because virtue is a code of honor and what virtue does is it embraces your actual realistic human nature. What's good about it and what's bad about it. So in order for us to understand the power of virtue, we have to understand a biblical definition of human nature nature. So I'd like to read from Romans chapter eight, uh, the first 18 verses, and then we're going to go in and we're going to study it just a little bit and kind of break it apart. Here is what it says. Verse one, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what he's talking about here is he's talking about the principle of the law and that is he's not talking about the specific codified Jewish law when he says the law of sin of death. He says there is a law of sin and there is a law of death and guess what it is the spirit who gives you life and sets you free from it. Let's go on. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what he's saying now is look, the law was powerless to do what it was supposed to do, and that is the law is supposed to make you righteous. But it couldn't do that because in the flesh, we weaken the law, meaning in our flesh, in this world, in this reality, because of sin, we are unable to fulfill all of the requirements of the law. We cannot make ourselves holy because we're sinful beings. And he said, because of this, God sent his own son in order to be a sacrifice because the law requires a sacrifice for flaws, for imperfections, for sin, and so Jesus paid that price on the cross and that allows us then to live according to the spirit. So this is a huge deal to them. Verse five. Now, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. So he says something very important here and that is is that the mind governed by the flesh when your mind is governed and controlled and thinks only in terms of what it wants and desires that ends up in death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace verse 7 the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to god So he's saying, look, when we are governed and controlled by the world's way of thinking, a secular mindset, it's hostile towards God because it does not submit to God's law or God's perspective, nor can it do so. So not only does it not want to, it just simply can't. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Verse nine, you who are, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ they do not belong to Christ but if Christ is in you then even your body is subject to even though your body is subject to death because of sin the spirit will give life because of its righteousness. Now here's a very important statement about human nature. Listen to what he says. He goes If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, so my physical body will die because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living inside you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So what an incredible promise it's made there about how Jesus makes us alive spiritually. Verse 12 goes on to say this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. It is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now we start to see the power of virtues here. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. And the spirit you receive does not make you a slave so that you live in fear. Rather the spirit received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him, we cry Abba father. So the spirit himself testifies within our spirit that we are God's children. Now, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. In the order that we may also share in his glory. Now, before we can talk about the virtues, we have to understand a very important philosophical point. It is, what is your definition of human nature? Now, there are a lot of definitions out there today. The first definition comes from like scientific materialism, atheism, secular humanism, and it came with this notion out of Rousseauian social theory. And that's driving what a lot of the crazy stuff we're experiencing today comes out of that, and that is that human beings are blank slates, right? They're not good or bad. And so it's society that makes them bad. So if we can social engineer society into a utopia, then guess what? Human beings will grow up and be wonderful. Beings because they're pure, uh, they can be made or, or developed into purity. It's society at large that teaches them to be evil. This is, uh, Rousseau's basic theory uh, about societies. Now there's another theory out there that the vast majority of the world is held to, and that is, is that there's something wrong with human beings. Uh, even from the earliest point of uh, conception, there's something wrong. And that's why the cross is such a powerful definition of human nature. See, when a Christian looks at a cross, what a Christian sees and hears is something totally different. The world rejects this, but a Christian sees it. And what's interesting is because the cross is so powerful, it has caused a lot of people who grew up in the church become intellectuals to reject the gospel because they feel it's too negative. And what it is this, here's the message of the cross, is that. It says two very powerful things. The first thing is this, there is something terribly wrong with me as a person. There's something so wrong with me as a person that somebody had to die in order to fix it and not just anybody, the son of God had to die. So in order for me to embrace Christ, I must first understand and accept the, uh, the inevitability of the power of evil residing within me, that there, there is more wrong with me than I could ever even imagine. So that, as you can see, is a, seems to a lot of people on the surface. Oh, that's so negative. That is so pessimistic about human beings. But the cross says something else and that is this. It says, not only is there something really wrong with me, but guess what? I am incredibly valuable because it was not just anybody died for me. The son of God died for me. How do you know the value of something? Well, as anybody will say, well, it depends on what someone will pay for it. Well, in order to save you, the son of God was willing to pay the highest price of all. And that is death on a cross. So, so the cross says to me, number one, there's something terribly wrong with me, but I am so valuable that the son of God died for me. And I would postulate that most of our problems right now exist because so many want to dispense with this basic principle, the notion that there is something terribly wrong with us. You see, many people have left the faith simply because they don't like this biblical doctrine. It seems too harsh, too negative. It seems too oppressive and damaging to the fragile esteem of human beings. I would say, well, people who think this have professed to be wise, but ultimately become fools. You see, they've trapped an entire generation in a deception that is destroying their souls. You see, I am here to say. That this ideology that human beings are blank slates and its society only that makes them wrong or bad is a lie. It is not true. The truth is the most hopeful truth. It is the most healing truth. It is the greatest truth that leads to freedom and liberty, and that is My human nature is flawed and it must be redeemed in order for me to know who I am and discover my authentic self. As C.S. Lewis said, our true selves, our authentic self is waiting for us in Jesus Christ. On my own accord, I will never follow or find it. Now, this is really important because this truth on the surface may seem negative and pessimistic, but it's actually hopeful because it actually gives you purpose and it works. It's the most workable philosophy, the most workable belief system or construct mental construct or paradigm that you can imagine because it, everything else just doesn't work uh, case in point. It won't work sociologically. When we adopt Rousseau's notion of how society works, society ultimately breaks down into chaos. We're seeing that right now in our society. Okay, listen, listen to this. There was a, a couple by the name of uh, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, and their claim to fame is that they are the ones who designed and originated the entire British social welfare system that exists today. And they were intellectuals, they were activists and philosophers. And guess what? They grew up in the church and then in university, they abandoned their faith. And what's really interesting is Beatrice. Uh, kept a diary and, uh, she wrote the following words. She said in my diary in 1890, I wrote the following words. I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. But 35 years later, I now realize how permanent the evil impulses and instincts within us and how little they seem to change like the greed of wealth or power and mere social machinery will never change that. So notice what she's saying. She's saying, I originally staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature and I designed social systems. So this is a Rousseauian notion that would help people become good people. But I was wrong. I did not realize how permanent the evil impulses and instincts are within us. She said, goes on to say this, we must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? And without this, how will we get better social institutions? So what she's saying is like social institutions can't get better until human nature gets better. And she found, wow, what a contradiction because human nature cannot get better through social systems. She goes on to say this, no amount of knowledge or science, will be of any avail meaning value unless we can curb the bad impulse within human nature. Can this be done without faith in the authoritative ethics associated with the spirit of love at work within the universe? She asked this question. Basically the answer is no. See no amount of knowledge, no amount of science will be to any value or avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. Impulse first, you see it, no matter how many social systems you put in place, if you don't deal with the bad impulse of human nature first, guess what? The social systems will not work. Uh, she believed human nature was good. And all we had to do was liberate it through, uh, uh, By by setting people free, I guess is the best way to say it, from authoritative morality or a traditional view of God. All we need in her mind was better social systems, better education, better science, better enlightened government and social networks. In other words, she believed in secularism. But at the end of her life, she said, this is not working because human nature is not good. Tim Keller states this, he goes, when we ignore the biblical doctrine of sin, we create social chaos. So, so the biblical definition of human nature is the only thing that will work if we want a society that works. There was, uh, another famous, uh, psychologist by the name of Dr. Hobart Maurer. He was president of the American Psychological Association. He taught at Harvard. He ended up at the university of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And in 1960, he wrote an article. For the American psychologist magazine, and this is what he said for several decades, we psychologists have looked upon the whole concept of sin and moral accountability is a great incubus. Now an incubus was an evil demon that would sneak into women's bedrooms at night in order to have sexual relations with them. So his view of traditional, uh, concept of sin and moral accountability was viewed as an incubus, a very evil thing. He says, and we declared our liberation from it as epic, but at length, he says, there's always a, but we discovered to be free in this sense to declare ourselves as sick instead of sinful is to court the danger of also becoming lost. So he's saying, in doing this, we have lost. What does he say they lost? For in becoming amoral, ethically neutral, and free, we have cut off the very roots of our being. We have lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity. And along with the neurotics themselves, we find ourselves asking, Who am I? What is my deepest destiny? What does living mean? Now it's really fascinating that he's saying in psychology, what we did is we called ourselves amoral. That comes from the Rousseauian nation notion of social theory. And guess what he's saying? It's totally destroyed our sense of identity and who we are as human beings. His his point was highly criticized and debated, but we are lost when we attribute evil to low self esteem, to poverty, maladjustment, all of these types of things. We're lost when we do that because we believe that we could put a social uh, construct in place to fix that, and it never happens because it never addresses the evil of the human heart. When you get rid of moral values, you lose your purpose, you lose your identity. And this is why today the whole issue of transgenderism, homosexuality and sexual identity is such a significant discussion to have because it's an attempt that is destroying the very roots on which all human beings define what it means to be a human being, particularly in the transgenderism debate. Carl Jung, a famous uh psychoanalyst and psychologist, all of his work focused primarily on the psychology of healing through forgiveness. And the only way in many ways that he said that we can ever become totally free or whole is when we accept all of our flaws, all of our failures. We realize that that uh, malevolence, evil exists within our own hearts. And until that's dealt with, we'll never become our authentic selves. And this is the doctrine of sin. It's not negative. The doctrine of sin is not pessimistic. It's not even oppressive. It's the only understanding of human nature that works. It makes the only understanding that makes any sense and gives you the path to freedom, and this is why the cross is such a powerful truth for so many people. That's why the virtues are so important. Let's explore the concept of virtues. The virtues are an expression of pursuing the spirit. Verse 10 of Romans eight, he says, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. So the beauty of having a code of honor and pursuing the virtues, guess what is that even when you don't feel like it, even when you're not motivated, even when you're filled with flaws and mistakes and your esteem of yourself is so low, you can live the virtues outward and still walk in righteousness. So even if you're not a Christian that's been redeemed, you can still contribute positively by pursuing the virtues. It's so much more difficult. It's almost impossible without the redemptive act of Christ in your life. But at least you become a decent human being by any measure. Number two, the biblical perspective is that pursuing the virtues is the path to emphasizing the spirit. So the more I live by virtues, the more I practice them, guess what? The more I will grow in my spirit. It says verse 14, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. So that is really possible, uh, uh, really, uh, excuse me, not possible, but important. Verse 13, right before it says, if you live according to the flesh, you die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Virtues help you do that. So, so just a couple closing thoughts. First of all, human nature is the issue. It always has and always will be in the human experience. What you believe on this issue is what will define your life. So clarify it. Make sure you understand what do I really think about human nature? Do I really understand myself? Cause only then are you ever going to really find the path to true happiness, to true joy and truth fulfillment. So I wish I could keep talking about this, but unfortunately we run out a bit of time. And so I hope that today's episode of the Salty Pastor has encouraged you to realize that sometimes the hardest truths are the most important truths and those truths end up freeing our souls. So blessings on you, signing off, Dr. Douglas Peak, the salty pastor.